Okay, so um, happy Sunday and welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today I am joined by a, a guest that I'm really excited to speak to, uh, somebody I haven't touched base with in a long time, but you know, all good things happen when they're meant to happen. So I'm very, very excited to have him on board today. Um, instead of letting him introduce himself, I actually decided before he gave me any of his uh, information, I was just going to Google him. <laughs> so I went on Google. Um, it took me to the Harvard website, which has some very interesting information about him. So I'm just going to read that out. So Aniket Day is a historian of modern South Asia and the British Empire. His academic and research interests include the political and economic history of the British Empire, the intellectual history of Indian nationalism, and the cultural history of colonial Bengal. Aniket received a BA in History and Anthropology from Tufts University in 2016, and his BA thesis had examined the history of a folk theatre form in the Indo-Bangladesh border, especially in relation to colonial and post-colonial nationalisms. Having combined um, ethnographic research and archival research, his work has received the Vida Allen Prize in History, the William Wilson Prize in Folklore, and the UK Higher Education Academy Prize of the British Parliament. Wow, <laughs> that's quite an introduction. So hello Aniket and welcome to the podcast. Hello Anuradha, thank you for having me and for a very generous introduction. Um, it, it, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you always, but after quite a few years uh, now, I'm very, very excited to, to be here and honored and, and looking forward to, to the discussion. Excellent. Um, so just to give you a little bit of information about why I started the podcast, um, as I'm getting through the world of work, as I'm navigating the workplace, I'm realizing that amongst ethnic minority professionals of all backgrounds in all industries, uh, we seem to not immediately have conversations about working as much. Um, maybe perhaps for ethnic minority women in particular, uh, talking about careers seems to have some sort of negative connotation attached to it sometimes. So to alleviate that to some extent, I wanted to speak to people whose career paths I admire, but more importantly, I think I really admire their sense of self, their personal development, and you are definitely one of those people. Um, I wanted to go back quite a few years to the first time that we came across each other. So this is a bit of a quiz. Do you actually remember the first time that we met each other in person? Yes, in, in, in the model you went, right? In, in St. Yes. James? Yes. Uh, yes. How long have you been doing model UN at that point? Because that was only my second model UN kind mm. of conference. Mine, mine too. So I actually uh, was not a great uh, MUNR or, or, or if that's the term I've forgotten. Uh, and, and I was mostly familiar with the debating circuit. MUN was still a rather new thing in Calcutta for sure when we were in, in high school. Um, I think I had just attended two MUNs before that. One was uh, in Delhi, in, in, in the DPS uh, Arkepuram MUN, which I think stopped after, <laughs> after the 2008 financial crisis. I think that was the oh, dear. Year 
I, I don't know if it has been you know revived uh, recently, but in our high school years, it, it kind of stopped after that. And I think the first one is in Calcutta was started in in La Martinia. Uh, I oh, attended, yes. yeah. I attended one, and then it was Saint James. I I never took to the the, the pattern very much. It it wasn't for me. <laughs> And um, so it, it was an isolated but a fun fun experience to meet people and, and, and chat and all. Yes, definitely. But I think something that struck me from a long time ago is you have always um, enjoyed speaking or, you know, just discussing um, issues that you're interested in. Uh, you, you're not, I, it, I wouldn't call you an introverted or somebody who, doesn't interact with other people. You seem to be quite um, confident when it comes to interacting with many students from a range of schools. Was that always the case or did you slowly build yourself up to that stage? Right. I mean, now that I think of it, I, I, I believe I was sort of uh, quietish till, till middle school. Um, but but after that, uh, you, you know, when I went to Delhi Public School, it it was a real switch for me. I, my, my primary and elementary schooling was in a, a smaller school, Julian Day in in, in Kolkata, and I I come from uh, the, not exactly the city of Kolkata, but from Howrah, which is in 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 the suburbs. And uh, I was uh, for a, for a long time. Um, I it, it's not a place where I speak. You know, I, I didn't grow up speaking English with, with my parents or people immediately around me. Um, it was a slow process of um, going to school and, and talking um, uh, to a great degree bookish. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know so much about your own experience, but much of my familiarity with the English language uh, came from books, uh, which is why sometimes even... Uh, after I came to the United States for my undergrad, it was um, it, it was the first time I had properly been in an in an you know completely English speaking uh, society, and that was a very interesting moment for me to to, to grapple. Uh, I would say it was after middle school when I went to um, my new school, which actually did a lot of uh, work to at least in those days to help students do better in public speaking and all that. I kind of improved on on that front and uh, and th that was a process of personal growth i would say that that happened over several years hmm. interesting um because you mentioned obviously the shift when you started going to dps um i went to a different dps but we are both deep sites in that sense um is there anything from your time at DPS that has helped you as you navigate, you know, the world of um, academia? Oh, ab absolutely. I think, uh, I think overall, so going back to your initial uh, preface about, uh, you know, why you are running this, this podcast about talking about career and, and work. I think that culture was definitely there in 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 in, in DPS, uh, not least because of our principal, who was very dynamic and very open to talking about the careers as careers, and and also the kind of openness to explore a, a broad range of careers. 
um, I mean, academia can be thought of as a, as a traditional career. Many people think of it that way. But it's actually not for people who come from my background, as, as you know well. I mean, the obvious mm -hmm. career choices there are medicine, engineering, and, and all of this. So from there, um, taking a, a, a specific career path was something DPS definitely very much encouraged. Uh, but in part because it was a very small school back in the day, and, and it was just we were the first uh, batch of the school. Um, first or second, um, and and um, teachers and the school had ample time and energy to invest in each student, and we definitely benefited a, a lot from it. So I, I think all of that helped a lot when I when I came abroad because I, I was able to, and it it matched very well with the liberal arts sensibility of the American universities that I that I came from, because th that too, there is that, you know, push to mm. explore your own kind of research projects, your own, uh, the, articulate things in your own way. Um, I, I think I have benefited a lot from that. Fair, yeah, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for what you did, which is, you know, shifting from one education system to the other one. Um, but keeping education aside for a second, um, since I wanted to kind of think about our background and our culture and our community where we come from, to what extent has being Bengali, um, growing up Bengali with the way that, you know, Bengali interact with each other, um, what kind of positive impact has that had for you as an academic? I mean, the first thing that I can think of just off the top of my head is talking because uh, Bengalis are not one to shy away from a conversation. Don't know if you'd agree or not. Yes, um, absolutely. I think uh, it, 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 is, it has been very important for me. It, it, it has shaped me very deeply uh, as a scholar. I mean, to this day, all of my work uh, engages some way or the other with, with Bengal and what it means to be a, to be a Bengali. Um, I, I mean, I think the one thing to, I should say at the outset is that um, I have way more attachment to the Bengali cultural region as a whole than to just Calcutta as a city. Mm, that's, that's an important differentiation to make. If you could elaborate on that would be really good. Yes. So I find far too often, especially in the academic sector, um, there is a very narrow idea of, of, of Calcutta that is perpetuated and, and spread by people from a, from a certain upper middle class in, in, in Calcutta. Now, again, um, you, you know, that is correct. And, and that is, uh, that has its own benefits. And then there's a certain class, uh, there's a certain urban culture in, in the city of Calcutta, which has been very important for Bengal's intellectual development. I mean, there is no question about that. Um, but I do find myself not always, I have always been an outsider to the city of Calcutta. I have never lived there. I have always lived in its uh, suburban borderlands and, and that's where my, my identity comes from. I have been much more fascinated by the, by the history of uh, Bengal overall. And by that I'm definitely including, including Bangladesh and, and the whole, uh, whole, whole cultural sphere that, that the Bengali 
religion gives. As a historian, there is immense opportunity. Uh, and, uh, and by opportunity, I mean intellectual opportunity to, to explore these, um, this region as, as a source of ideas. And um, you find it, and uh, you know, just simply thinking of, of religion and, and the way the two communities, uh, Hindus and Muslims in, in Bengal historically have lived is, is a fascinating case study. I mean, I know the story we often hear is told in terms of hatred and fighting, um, like riots and, and mutual hatred that's coming back again in many ways. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, as, as a historian, I, I cannot emphasize enough how long there has been a history of cooperation and mutual, you know, understanding between these two communities everywhere in, 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 in Bengal. And so that, that, that is, for me, a, a very basic expression of diversity and, and, and an acknowledgement of diversity. And, and that's something that I, I really cherish about, about Bengal. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, coincidentally, last night I was watching a film called um, The Viceroy's House, which is, um, it's told from a British point of view about Mountbatten and um, what he hoped to accomplish when he uh, went to India. Um, consequently, the film talks about partition to some extent. Um, but actually, the narrative of what happened you know in that span of time for so many of us we were influenced very much by the books we read um, what our teachers told us in lessons what our elders told us when we you know communicated about it but did you see personally when you left india um, did you discover different uh, different narratives about what that time was like when you were in the States, when you got into research uh, in, a bit, in a bit more depth, did you come across uh, ideas about nationalism and um, the history of India at that point? Did anything surprise you compared to maybe something you learned when you were growing up? Absolutely. I mean, I, I cannot, uh, you, you know, this is, I cannot emphasize, emphasize this enough. This is this was for me almost a revelation when I came to college. So a little bit of background here. Mm -hmm. um, I had actually come to study archaeology and anthropology and not modern history at, at Tufts, uh, Tufts University in, in Boston. And um, uh, because I, I wasn't too keen on studying India at first, because I thought that, okay, I have read Indian history in school. What more can I know? And exactly mm -hmm. what you were saying. <laughs> This was yeah. when I was I was an 18 year old, so I, I guess I, I I can ask for forgiveness. And there I so I came and I studied archaeology. I went on an archaeological dig my first year to to Turkey, and um, but at the same time I I was mentored by uh, this great historian at at Tufts uh, called Aisha Jalal. Um, who is who's a very well-known historian. She is, in fact, one of the best known, the best historian of, of, of uh, independent Pakistan um, and, and also of very much of India and the Indian Ocean. Uh, and she is a phenomenal lecturer and has been a mentor. It was in her classes that I really saw Indian history in a way I had never thought I, I would. Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, first of all, I, I first saw, so for instance, uh, you know, she, 
her, her first book, uh, which was quite a groundbreaking book in the 1980s, was called The Soul Spokesman. It's about Muhammad Ali Jinnah and how Jinnah didn't really want Pakistan to be an independent state uh, in, in the way it ultimately became. He wanted kind of a federal union with India in, in, oh. in the United States of South Asia kind of a model. And it's because of certain political turmoils of the time, not least the British pressure to exit in between, I mean, the initial date was June 1948, then, then Mountbatten came and pushed it back and the British decision to leave in haste uh, and other problems between the Congress leaders and the League leaders that things came out to be. So that perspective was just something groundbreaking for, for me. And just the way Indian history was analyzed, I mean, now I know this is well known in, in academic circles, but I quite didn't then. And I think having that critical distance from India, seeing India in relation to other events happening in the world, uh, you know, for instance, the, the partition of Ireland uh, from the 1920s, mm, yeah. very many similarities. Uh, and also the partition of Palestine the same year as, 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 in, as in India. When you see India in relation to so many of these world events, you simply understand that it's not like the analytics of Indian history that we have been fed for as children. It's not really as unique or as exceptional as that. There is a broader pattern, there are broader historical logics that, that govern this. And that was very, very interesting for, for me. Hmm. Wow. Um, but I suppose there might be somebody who is in your position so many years ago, someone who is 18 right now, who is in India, who is interested in um, this sort of academic pursuit. What can a younger person do to develop criticality without perhaps realizing when they are in the situation? So I'm saying for you, when you moved to the US and you became involved in these narratives, then you had a sense of like applying a critical lens to the history that you've known about. Um, but somebody who is, let's say, currently in Kolkata, who is interested in history, what can a young person do to develop um, criticality? I, I, I must uh, preface this answer by saying, I think this was the trajectory I took, but I, I know many people in, in Kolkata or in Delhi who went on to study in Indian universities have developed mm -hmm. similar critical faculties too and similar understandings, partly because these books are taught in history courses, in, 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 even in college history courses in, in, in India. So it's, it's well possible that, I, you know, this is just my trajectory. People come into these things in, in, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the best, uh, you know, even Indian universities traditionally have been, uh, in contrast to the Indian school curriculum, Indian colleges and universities have traditionally been very critical and skeptic of, of nationalist narratives. And this India is unique in, in, in this, this fashion, at least used to be, I don't know what will happen with, 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 with <laughs> yeah, but uh, for, for a long time, India's universities were very, very critical about India. Some of the strongest critiques of Indian history have come out from within Indian academia. 
Mm. Uh, this is not the case with other countries. You know, when I when I studied, say, the historiography of China or of Turkey, they have followed very, very different lines. I mean, I it is very rare for a long historiographic movement from within Turkey to challenge Turkish nationalism. Mm. Um, it, there are isolated works, but it's not a major strand. In India, that is or, or has been. So it, it, it is there. I, I, I believe, um, you, you know, with increasingly, I think one of the best things to keep in mind while reading history is to read it in a non-ideological manner at first. You know, sometimes nationalist ideology is just one of them. Uh, Marxist ideology being, being another. And many works are written after buying into these ideologies. Mm-hmm. And each of it has its merits and demerits. So for a student, it's best to read all sorts of works without necessarily buying into any ideology too, too, too quickly. Um, and, and then slowly with the process of uh, you know, development and an understanding, you come to some kind of an understanding about which position you, you prefer. But history is a, the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that history is a, it's all, all history is about rewriting history. You know, historio, that's why there is a genre called historiography. Um, we have a tendency as young students in high school to believe whatever is written on paper, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you give someone a book, you, you're, a, you're a teacher. I don't know if you have noticed uh, this tendency among your students, but uh, even when I have taught students, I've seen there is a tendency to, if it's, if it's on print, it must be true. I think one of the first things to develop as historians is just know that, uh, you know, text should be understood in their own contexts. Um, they should be, um, you know, questioned and treated with a degree of skepticism even. Um, and, and that is how that should be true for both primary sources, which is historical documents from the old, but also what we call secondary sources, which is books written by historians mm-hmm. and, and you, you see. So every history book you read is really one voice in a larger conversation. And it's important to see it in, in that fashion. Yeah, very true. Very, I mean, um, I think I had a similar experience to some extent when I went to Canada for a year abroad uh, during my undergraduate degree when I was studying political science. And it was a Pakistani professor who was leading a module about the politics of South Asia, who explained the regional you know, uh, conflicts regarding you know, shifts in power and how different countries interact with each other and what they are motivated by. And I, I just thought that was so fascinating. And I really wish that when I was still a history or a, a civic science student in Kolkata, um, any exposure to that kind of thought would have been really, really good. But I suppose there's also the case that sometimes you are quite young and perhaps including it in the curriculum for 15, 16 year olds is possibly a little bit overwhelming. Would you agree? <laughs> yes, I, 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 I think so. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, that, that said, I think there are other ways to, to expose it, expose younger people to the basic skills of history um, beyond uh, simply, you know, what we did was basically memorize as, as, as good as we 
could yes. and, and then, then write, which is again, you know, you'd be surprised. I have, you know, that that training has its share of benefits that it really hammers uh, down a lot of uh, facts in your head and you never forget them. Um, but uh, I have seen so many great historians make basic factual errors while speaking because in terms of the dates and the places and all, because, you know, they really matter less when it, when it comes to the historical discipline at its highest order. It's about interpretation. It's, it's your interpretation of those facts that, that matter. Um, and, and, and so facts and, and what we call facts is, is a very um, contested terrain in, 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 in history. So I, I think instilling them very early on, getting students the habit of reading primary sources is very important uh, early on. So for instance, um, giving students a, 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 an old document translated, if, if, if it's in difficult or obscure languages translated and then sent and asking them to draw their own conclusion, basic analytical skills, what yeah. we would call analysis. I, I think that that's very important to instill early on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think what I'm going to do now is I'll pause the recording and we will um, follow the steps that I had previously right, right. and then I will see you in the second one then. Okay. Okay. Okay.